out there, welcome to episode 135 of the Love That Album podcast. Morris here in Melbourne. And I have two wonderful people on the other end of a Skype connection. This episode has been nine years in the making. I had to get my agent to talk to their agents. And there was a whole lot of back and forth ballyhoo before I could acquire their services. And it's finally happened. I have gotten two wonderfully published authors to come on and join. And I can't even begin to tell you the fees I had to pay to get them on because normally they can't stand being in each other's presence but (laughs) we made this happen so first of all in channel one returning to the show for her i don't know 99th appearance or maybe it's just her (laughs) i think it's the i think it's the third out of arkansas and freshly moved into a new palatial establishment Ms. heather drain the author of the bizarro encyclopedia of film welcome to love that album episode 135 heather Wow, thank you so much for having. This is, this is an honor and a pleasure. Oh, it's, it's certainly my honor and pleasure. And on the other channel, for his first appearance on Love That Album, although he has been on See Here, the other podcast that I'm happy to be doing stuff on, he is the author of two great books, maybe more, but the two that we know and love him for, Heavy Metal Movies and Teen Movie Hell. And he runs three podcasts, which I'll let him talk to you about. <laughs> the man who was successful in bringing a Captain and Tennille song as done by Mae West back into my ear holes. <laughs> and for that, I'm not sure whether to thank him or to curse him. Stop, because I really love you. Stop, I'll be thinking of you. Look in my heart and let love keep us together. Whatever. Mr. Mike McBeardo McPadden, welcome to Love That Album. Thank you so much. I'm merely a conduit. The universe was deeming it necessary, Mars, for you to have Timothy Dalton and Mae West serenading each other inside your brain forever. Oh, oh, welcome to Love That Album. Why didn't you come up to the <laughs> podcast sometime? Oh. Tell us about your podcast and how Sextet came into my ear holes this week. Yes, at present I am uh, part of three podcasts, <laughs> as you said, and they all kind of hit very suddenly. So the first one is called Crackpot Cinema. I do that with my friend Aaron Lee, who is a big shot television executive and comedy writer, former executive producer of Family Guy, and a early 90s zinester, which is how I knew him, from Kentucky. And we became very good friends via the zine world in the 90s. I got hired in... At Hustler Magazine in 1993, and then I was able to get him hired, and he stayed on, uh, and I uh, moved back to New York so I could pick up my drug addiction and alcoholism <laughs> where I left it before I moved out to L.A., and, uh, you know, Aaron is a solid citizen, and he did what he did, and he and I, in 1994, hatched the plan for Teen Movie Hell. We said, let's do a complete encyclopedia of teen sex comedies from the 70s and 80s, and at the tail of the pup, a a hot dog stand shaped like a hot dog that is famous from the beginning of eating Raul. And, uh, you know, we kind of shook on it. And then I worked on the book for 25 years and Aaron became the executive producer of Family Guy. But I have the book. And, you know, he and I are obsessed with the same type of movies. We're about the same age, grew up at very similar obsessions with the adult world seen through the eyes of a kid in the 70s, which was a time to be a kid like no other. It's about all that. But we do how we do earlier films than that. And it's just sort of movie that fell between the cracks that we're interested in. So that's one. Uh, on a similar note, my friend Ben Reiser and I, who I went to college with, have started 70 movies we saw in the 70s, which is a very focused podcast, as you can tell from the title. And 
uh, he and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York uh, in the 70s, right around the corner from each other, didn't know each other until we went to college. And that podcast is about the movies that we actually saw as children, either in theaters or on television or wherever. And the, we started with Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. The inspiration was a photograph that Ben found uh, with his grandmother in Times Square in 1972. And they are outside of a, the Embassy Theater showing Conquest of the Planet of the Apes big fancy Times Square marquee with a Judith Christ pull quote hanging in a banner and if you know anything about Conquest of the Planet Apes it's a, it's it's the heaviest of ape films it was the first film I ever saw to drive in wow 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 the pull quote on the banner was a fine fun time so, <laughs> <laughs> which you know I mean it's awesome it's cool it's scary it's thrilling fine and fun you know I don't know but you know that was the great Judith Christ and then the third one is yeah, a true honor i am uh, intercontinental now doing a podcast with the great cat ellinger of diabolique as she says magazine over in uh, old blighty in england and uh that's called busted guts and that is our examination of the comedy film genre and really the motivation for that was i can't stand horror movies anymore so I'm much more interested in any genre besides horror movies. And I'm certainly not interested in talking about the same five movies that everyone else is talking about. So mm. those are my podcasts. Wow. We'll be putting links to those up when I put the show out. But that is as diverse. Yeah, I think you're pretty much covering the whole history of cinema of the last whatever 40 years or something like that yeah i would say 50 years probably started the late 60s still yeah my lord and heather drain you're still keeping busy podcast wise i mean you just put out one with mike white in the last week mike and i and an amazing uh, writer named jess we got to talk about fernando arabal's film this is actually feature film debut viva la muerte mm. and wow. for this wow. Yes, yes, which has been a favorite movie of mine for several years now. And it was a lot of fun, as much fun as talking about Viva La Muerte. <laughs> really, if you may see that movie, they're like, fine. But yes, like, it's it's so great. And um, for those of you who don't know, Arabal actually was part of the panic movement in France that also included Roland Topar, who's probably best known to a lot of people for being the screenwriter for Polanski's The Tenet. Um, but he's done a lot more stuff than that. And he's also a great artist and illustrator, but also one of my absolute art god Alejandro Hororowski mm. so if you're definitely if you're a fan of Hororowski him and Arbel are two very different artists but if you love one you'll probably love the other so I, I would recommend it and do you have like another 10 films in the next couple of months with Mike we do have a recording uh, coming up in July right now I've been um, in addition to moving I just finished three amazing deadlines for things I cannot talk about yet because <laughs> the news <laughs> isn't out of them but I promise they're all very exciting very diverse so yeah i've been i've been focused on that once the great move is over with i'm definitely looking forward to diving in and getting some more article work done of course i have an ongoing series at diabolique or diabolique about the tubes i was going to ask when's the next <laughs> chapter I want yes to, i want you to get to remote control oh i know i know which is one of my favorite tubes albums spoiler alert uh, ever though i love <laughs> all of them but um called darted in your armchair there's also like i have an article 
article that I've had going on forever that I need to finish about Ruth White, who was an electronic music pioneer. She actually did a whole album based on different aspects of the tarot, as well as one inspired by the poetry of Baudelaire, which uh, makes me probably sound like one of the most like stereotypical goths or pseudo-goths. <laughs> 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 as I'm smoking, I should be smoking cloves right now. Um, it's, it's that stereotypical. And I've recently really gotten interested in this another musical, electronic music pioneer named Carlos Peron. And Carlos was actually one of the founding members of Yellow, which most people are more okay. familiar with that band being a duo, but they started out as a trio. His solo stuff is amazing. And just the more I'm discovering about him and his work, it's just kind of blowing my mind. He scored a Klaus Kinski movie, so of course he's going to come in my stratosphere. <laughs> well, you guys have been kept really, really busy in this stupid time. The reason that you, uh, dear listener, have downloaded this, hopefully, is because you want to hear us talk about the band Sparks and their 1982 album, Angst in My Pants. So we're going to get on and do just that in a couple of minutes. I'll now play the cart where Joanne tells you how you can get in contact with us, how you can get involved in the social medias, all that sort of stuff. And then we'll be right back to... I was going to make some crappy joke about having erections and angst and all that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to go there. Look, never mind. Or, or I possibly already have. Anyway, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 135. I got a dusty old pie. Of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com, or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. And we're back from break. Morris over here, Heather over there, Mike somewhere else over there. They're sort of a, a little bit closer to each other over there, and I'm a long way away over here. And you're listening to Love That Album. And we're going to be talking for the next period of time about the band Sparks, and in particular their album from 1982, Angst In My Pants. Now, before we get into talking about Sparks and your introduction to them and all that sort of thing, I have to make the confession that apart from a handful of singles and really loving Kimono My House, which I only picked up on like in the last few years because my brother, Tim Merrill, went and insisted that I listen to it. I'd never really been a Sparks listener. So I'll talk a little bit about that more in a few minutes, but I want to get the skinny from you two guys. Now, Mike, this was an album that you picked for us to talk about on the show. So I want to know how far back do you go with The Mailmen? 1982, March of 82. I was 13 years old and they appeared on an episode of Saturday Night Live hosted by Danny DeVito. And I had never seen, heard, or imagined anything like them. I was a, a fan of Devo at the time. Uh, not a huge fan, but enough that I had an album. And I thought, well, this is Devo plus me when I watched them do uh, I Predict. But especially Mickey Mouse with the lead-in of Ron doing a bizarre explanation to Danny DeVito about the biological properties of mice. Introduce Ronald Mail of Sparks with a few words about his first song. The mouse is a member of the rodent family 
distinguished from the rat in that it is smaller in size. It usually measures six inches in length, approximately 15 centimeters, and weighs one ounce, which is of course approximately 28 grams. The mouse is responsible for much of the world's pestilence and destruction. When the mouse is not scaring women, eating saltine crackers from cupboards, or ingesting huge amounts of saccharin in laboratory experiments, the mouse has been known to enter the world of entertainment. One such mouse was named Mickey. You know, he got from behind his Ronald keyboard and started breakdancing, and it was a revelation. It was one of those moments where the lights came on behind my eyes. And that was when I graduated eighth grade, which was not long after that. I took some money and I bought Sparks, angst in my pants, and loved it. That was your first album of it? Yes, yes. Did you go back through the back catalog at that point? Not at that point, but I kept going forward over the next couple of years. Not until years later, uh, 2003, when I moved to Chicago and met Brian Collins with whom I would join his band Gaze in the Military and he was going through a severe Sparks thing the early the you know half Nelson onward two angst in my pants and I, I joined him on that journey and uh, it just became an obsessive Heather when Mike said to me alright let's do this album on the show and I thought well I've been wanting an excuse to have you back and I thought yeah Sparks will be so in your wheelhouse tell me how much in your wheelhouse are they totally <laughs> wholly completely utterly substantially fantastically in my wheelhouse to say that i love this band is an understatement it's like people that love bad haircuts saying they love the flow bees remember those things those little <laughs> suck yeah. cuts there the, yeah the self-barber device yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yes, I love them. They did not actually come into my like awareness though until my mid-teens because I grew up in kind of a very at that time it's kind of it's the population's gotten a lot bigger now. But at the time, kind of small to middling, just working class town in Arkansas and the town I, I actually like grew up in. We didn't have like a record store. Like you got music at Kmart, Walmart, or like thrift stores. I was always looking for like compilations, and because that was always a way to kind of find different music. This is pre-internet. I got a tape that had I predict on it and I immediately was like what is this you're gonna take a walk in the rain and you're gonna get wet I'll predict you're gonna eat a bowl of champagne and be hungry real soon I predict all my sources correct I predict I love this <laughs> <laughs> I and I've always been like a researcher. Like anytime something for, you know gets my interest, I gotta like nestle and follow all the little roadways and highways to it. And I at a, at a used record store found Komodo My House. That's the only sports they had, but I bought it, loved it, and it was just love ever since. It's funny because to me they're like one of those bands that are they are so quintessentially American, but I think they're American to the point where it's like they could never be as big over here as they should be. Like they've always been a little too smart, a little too quirky, a little too kind of hard to pigeonhole. But to me, that's usually, that's where like the sweetest fruit is. And to this day, I haven't listened to their suit. Like they have a new album out now. I haven't had a chance to yeah. get that yet. But like their collaboration they did a few years ago, Franz Ferdinand, FFS was amazing. Great. And that was so great. I've listened to that album so much and I always return to it too. Like it's so good. It's crazy to think that like Ron is in his seventies now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Russell's in his late 60s, but they they 
look great. They still are vital artists. And you think about how many like bands that found popularity in the 70s and 80s. And by the time they get to their kind of golden years, it's just sort of like the Coors Light tour. And I'm not judging it because some bands raised got kids and grandkids and they got to pay mortgages. Like, I'm not judging. But when you see artists that are like, fuck that, I'm going to do what I want. And it's still good. It's like, oh, my God, that's, you know, that's inspirational. I have listened to a handful of tracks from the last few years. And actually, they've released a couple of songs from the album, which is going to be released, I think, in July. And it's great. I think there was a song, though, that I watched the film clip and was immediately drawn to it because it was a piece of animation. So I wanted to show it to my son, Max. Edith P.F. said it better than me. What a great song. I mean, it seems like maybe some people left them in the 80s. And I know I've seen some people like write in the music forums. I was good after Angst in My Pants or after Womp That Sucker or something like that. But there are other people who are saying there might be some periods that are better than others. But overall, they've still been a great act to be reckoned with. And I think it does come down to exactly what you're saying there, Heather, that they just did exactly what they want. But from my perspective, just sort of remembering as a teen about the music that was out at that time you've gone and said there that they were the quintessential american band and i always thought that they were the quintessential british band i mean by their own admission from what i've been reading up recently ron in particular always said that he was an anglophile and yes i mean there was the british new wave sound at the time the late 70s early 80s and then there was the american new wave sound and this music sounds so british to me and it was like a, a real head scratching moment think what they're american Really? I always thought they were British. So people of my age, certainly who lived in Australia anyway, will remember the video clip on our biggest pop TV show called Countdown. The one that was big in 81, I think, was When I'm With You from the album Terminal Jive. was a moderate hit and to my reckoning I think that might have been just the one top 40 hit that they ever had and this video had a lot to do with making me think that they were British there was something about the background light in that I know that sounds like a weird thing but there was something about the lighting in that video and the sense of humor that they had in that video that just seemed very British to me it reminded me of say an Adam and the Ants video sure but it was definitely a syntho poppy song that seemed sort of very accommodating of that period of time I was sort of wondering, is this a predictor of what the 80s is going to be, you know, before Phil Collins took over with his cursed gated reaper? <laughs> which took over absolutely everything after that. But it seemed to fit in with some other songs that were moderately popular at the time. Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime by the Corgis, which was another top 40 hit over here, moderate. I don't know if either of you guys would remember M, pop music. Oh, yeah. yes. But another song from that time, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, which was by a, a guy who only just passed away a few days ago, Rupert Hine. Had oh. A, had an album called Immunity, and there was a, a song in it called Misplaced love we mentioned 
this back in November on the Marion Faithful episode we did about broken English because she has like a guest appearance on that song. So Sparks sort of fits in. It's Britishness, at least to my ears, fits in with Rupert Hine and the Corgis and and maybe the Euro disco of M. The other point of reference for me at that time, though, was I think 1980 when Paul McCartney's big song at the time was coming up. Either of you remember that one? Yes, yes, with mm-hmm. Paul and Linda playing many different parts, yes. Macker is doing Ron Mayle, so obviously right. he would have been a fan of Sparks at the time, and I'm thinking, oh, at the time I didn't know who he was. When I'm With You came out a year later or so, and I thought, oh, that's the guy in the Macker film clip. The song, it appealed to me, I mean, like, musically, if it had different lyrics, it might not have, but it seemed bizarre to me that, you know, we got these lyrics like, I never feel like garbage when I'm with you. I almost feel normal <laughs> when I'm with you. I have to take a shower when I'm with you. I think, well, this is not a 1980s love song. I mean, the, the other big love songs at the time were All Out of Love by Air Supply and mm-hmm. Sailing by Christopher Cross. I mean, these, <laughs> these were the top 40 songs of the day. And that's, once again, coming back to the Britishness, the, the American stuff seemed to me to be that sort of bland West Coast type of stuff. And the thing that was coming out of England, okay, look, probably there are people screaming into their devices. Yeah, you, you idiot. You know, there was Devo and they probably can name like a hundred other American acts at the time who were doing this off-kilter sort of American stuff. But that was my point of reference at the time. Top 40 seemed to be just like a weird sort of time. You had those sort of songs, but then I guess you also had Love Will Tear Us Apart and Brass and Pocket and Town Called Malice from The Jam. So there was all sorts of things going on. And Sparks had, as I found out a lot later, had a history going back maybe about seven or eight years before that, at least from the right. time they started recording records. Anyway, that's my point of reference. Something else to the Britishness, and, and I agree agree with you very much Heather they are so American that only British can get it only the British could could have gotten it is if you do you remember the uh, medley song uh, stars on 45 oh yeah absolutely it's this huge you know cut with to a disco beat you know sugar sugar by the arch it's just a cover and then a bunch of Beatles songs but the only other song they reference at the beginning is beat the clock right at the beginning right before they start singing because you got to beat the clock 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 then goes into the you can party love disco love that disco sound <laughs> holy shit you know I, I hadn't remembered that and when I was going through the 70s stuff which sounds like British glam rock is when I discovered that you know Morrissey had been their great champion and booked them and they played the 21 albums and 21 sold out nights in England you mentioned the music video for when I'm with you did you recognize the main woman in that video no I don't yeah it's Perry Lister who uh, was in the video for Duran Duran's The Chauffeur, which is an amazing music video. Of course, um, she's probably best known for being Billy Idol's, they never made it legal, I don't know, his lady, his mm-hmm. the, the mother of his child for years, and she's in the White Wedding video and Hot in the City. She was also in a girl group that were featured on Electric Blue, which I don't know if, if any of us oh, remember that. I know, I know Electric Blue. You yeah. know Electric Blue. <laughs> I can sing this song. Now the time has come. The truth is text and cars and girls, electronics and about electric blue. So we should explain what Electric Blue was. It was like a softcore porn magazine, video magazine, that aired late nights in Brooklyn on uh, Wometco Home Theater, which was our only pay TV service. 
Yeah, and it would be like little music video style vignettes or interviews with porn stars or avant-garde artists and uh, I suppose uh, Perry Lister's band also. I don't remember that episode, though. Her band, it, it wasn't even really like a band. They were like, she was a dancer. There was almost more, it was almost kind of like that band Shock, which Barbie Wilde was in. It was sort of like, yeah, they're making their music, but also like half the band are just kind of there dancing and it's very multimedia and kind of, that was the time period where something like that could happen. It's really kind of a rarefied time to think about that. I mean, dancing and music's nothing new, but to have that actually as part of the show was kind of cool. But of course, yeah, now I remember, because I saw a clip of it and it's like Perry, it's her, the girls, and they're sort of, of course, they're like in vinyl and little peekaboo tops doing this very arty dancing where, you know, I'm sure most of the guys are like, you know, where's the boobs? But that's kind of the cool thing about Sparks. They're one of those bands where, like, you start looking up stuff and they're almost what I call, like, a conduit kind of artist that they're attached to all kinds of other cool artists and other sort of, like, people that are kind of wheel-making and breaking the wheels. Because I think their first album was released on Todd Rundgren's Bearsville label. I could be wrong on that. Yeah, so you got, like, the Todd Rundgren. Of course, they made some amazing music with Giorgio Moroder. Isn't that fascinating that amongst their producers, they could say in the same sentence that they had Todd Rundgren and Giorgio Moroder, which makes sense in a lot of ways, but I don't know that there's anyone else who could say that they have that in their CV, both of those artists. And Rupert Holmes, don't forget, who uh, oh, was best yes. known for Barbara Streisand's 70s stuff and then the Pina Colada song. Have you heard him on Gilbert's podcast, Morris? I absolutely have. I was typing something to Frank this week and said, Frank, there's something that you said on the show that really inspired me in terms of in relation to Sparks and he went and typed back to me he said don't forget to talk about Rupert Holmes don't forget to talk about <laughs> Rupert <laughs> so, good, uh, good. So, um, I, I thought yeah no chance we won't bring that up but yeah Rupert he was to me until he came onto Gilbert's show I thought yeah he's just that guy who did the Pina Colada song and I'm having to sort of like tell people you don't know who this guy is he's yeah. fucking <laughs> incredible he's a renaissance man he's done so much and it sort of got me to thinking how many other supposed one hit wonders out there really did nothing else after that. They, I'm sure that so many of them did plenty of stuff, but it's just the general public and the radio just chose not to have anything more to do with them. Can we go back for a moment to Americans and Sparks versus the British? So I not only think of Sparks as the quintessential American band, as Heather said, too American for Americans to understand, but also the quintessential Los Angeles band with much the same results. And the other band I think of in those terms is Red Cross. And of course, Steve McDonald of Red Cross played bass in Sparks later on in his career. Oh, wow. And to me, yeah, to me, it's the same issue is that they were just always ahead of the curve. And it's not good to be ahead of the curve. It's good to be on the curve in terms of commercial popularity. And one thing with Sparks is that they certainly had every shot. The industry foisted them on the public time and again. And time and again, the public said no thank you <laughs> and what comes to mind is the movie roller coaster with george siegel the thriller shot in sense around one of those movies uh was supposed to be kiss and kiss bowed out so they could make kiss makes the phantom of the park and they brought in sparks to play perform the rupert holmes produced big boy from the big beat album the earth is shaking so am i Oh 
know, all over the Valley Girl soundtrack, all over a lot of soundtracks, high profile stuff, their name on the album, you know, Get Crazy. They do the theme song from Get Crazy. And at the end of the 80s, when Los Angeles is KROQK Rock, which was the cutting edge commercial FM rock radio station in America, at the end of the 80s, they were the third most played artist on K-Rock. And still they couldn't sell any records. You mentioned that you sort of see them as a quintessential Los Angeles band, but just goes to show, I guess, how diverse Los Angeles must have been at that time. Because you mentioned Los Angeles and early 80s, and I'm thinking X, I'm thinking Los Lobos, I'm thinking The Blasters, more that sort of rootsy punk sort of scene. What comes to mind with Sparks is Forbidden Zone. Richard Elfman and Danny Elfman in Forbidden Zone, and that wing of the Los Angeles New Wave. Yeah. That's my favorite movie of all time, so... (laughs) Yeah, that was one like with the bizarre, but John Skip and I are like, we almost literally arm wrestled ever <laughs> who got Forbidden Zone. Like we had to make a trade. It's like, okay, if you're getting, if you're doing Forbidden Zone, buddy, I get Phantom of Paradise. Would so. <laughs> you agree that Forbidden Zone, is, it's a film that could only have arisen from Los Angeles, from people who grew up in Los Angeles and were completely immersed in that culture as non-natives could not possibly be. Absolutely. And, and, and only from that very particular time period. And is like a, a dinosaur egg that hatches once every 2,000 years or something. That is the Forbidden Zone. It is like this rare dinosaur egg of a movie. And it's absolutely fucking brilliant. And you can never see it enough. That's one of the handful of movies I like. I watch like once a year and I've rewatched. I used to like, I would bring the soundtrack to parties in college and like switch shit out and put it in there. And that only worked for me once because there was a French exchange student named Elsa. <laughs> and she loved it. Me and her danced to it. <laughs> but that was... Everybody else is like, what's this? Heathens. That's an excellent point, Mike. Especially because like, they were on SNL. They made multiple appearances on American Bandstand. Yeah, yeah. And, and Clark yes. seemed to like talking to them like because they were really funny. He really seems to enjoy their appearances on American Bandstand. Oh, my gosh. There's one I actually rewatched prepping uh, for this episode this morning that is, <laughs> is so good. and Because it's of this era, too. They do, I predict. It starts out with Ron Mails like, in the audience. And, and Dick Clark's like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you are you finished? I'm so excited to be. I'm so excited. <laughs> Russell, would you can you can, do you have any control over this man? <laughs> like Rod's so ambitious, and it, it's a. I highly recommend it. And of course, this is probably. I have a very fondness for this era of this band, but I'll, I'll save that for a little bit later. I wanted to digress for a bit, but it's, and then we can bring it back to Sparks. But I sent you guys a note during the week saying, do a little bit of reading up on Zolo. A few months ago on this podcast, I was joined by my son Max to talk about one of his favorite albums from British band Cardiacs. This album is called Sing to God. And he brought to my attention about this term Zolo. There was a fellow called Terry Sharkey, who was a radio DJ, I think out of Portland. And he developed the term Zolo. Now, most music genres, there'll be the genre first and artists will play towards that style. But Terry sort of looked over the history of pop music 
and he found that there were a lot of bands that normally weren't necessarily clumped together in your record store that he thought there's some commonality about them on the rate your music site they say zolo is characterized by hyper jerky rhythms synthesized bleeps and boings polka dot percussion chipper falsettos zany imagery and a zappa-esque sense of humor back in october where we were talking about cardiacs and i was sort of reading up all this stuff about zolo and sparks had come up in the notes that i was reading and so i thought oh yeah okay so it's as much to do about the humor as it is to do with the bleep bloops and blops terry he was looking for this link through a number of bands the early incarnations of xtc for instance when barry andrews was still playing the synth for mm. those first couple of albums and godly and cream and i guess by extension 10cc and i've sure more to say about 10cc a little bit later on in the show so my question to you heather is do the tubes fit into that category? I would have to say only a little bit. I think musically the tubes were kind of like, they were a little more, even though they always had really great synth works, thanks to the amazing Michael Cotton and uh, Vince Welnick, they were arty, but they were rock. And like the roots of the tubes, like even going down to like the two bands that formed the tubes, which are the Beans and the Red, White and Blues band, that's kind of that origin of it. Lyrically though, sure, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I just think there's certain bands that after a while it's like you know what genre what category is it it's the tubes <laughs> that's <a> category. Yeah. <laughs> i think at the end of the day i would say the same thing about the sparks i'm just like they're kind of just their own thing you know like just i think some artists are just so unique and just have such their own fingerprint that they just defy any sort of box-like description yeah i, I had trouble sort of thinking about this ultimately i would put them in the zolo bag as much for the changing time signature proggy style the early days and the sense of humor and i think the humor plays a large part the zapper-esque sense of humor and you listen to an album like now or young and rich and there's definitely that frank zappa level of sense of humor and, and i guess the other thing i wanted to in my mind about zolo is sense of humor without necessarily being a comedy band so bonzo dog doodah band i don't necessarily know i'd say uh a zolo-esque type of band whether they'd fit into this category if you want to put them in that but the tubes are and sparks definitely are humorous without necessarily being a comedic band so weird al yankovic doesn't fit into into that that category i read somewhere that there were some people who sort of thought that cheap trick were embraced by that zolo category and on the one hand i'm thinking no i mean for the same reason that you said like you know the tubes were rock and certainly cheap trick are a rock band and yet there was something about the presentation and i think zolo and that level of humor that you could sort of put a timeline throughout these bands cheap trick had that sense of humor and one thing where i'd sort of compare them very much to sparks is you had the two guys who were the the handsome the poster boys the <laughs> yes robin zander and tom peterson were going up on teenage girls walls just like russell Mailwood. and you had these weird ass guys bunny carlos and rick nielsen <laughs> who were probably second cousins to ron mail sure can we just talk about how awesome bunny carlos is anytime endlessly him. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes when i think um, of that division in sparks i always think of ron i imagine him going like i can't believe 
believe my little brother looks like this and I get to use him as my mouthpiece and make this work <laughs> and be me. I can't believe this happened in my life. That Russell would say, yeah, sure, I'll go along for that because these guys are not the Gallagher brothers. You know, right. I'm, I'm not going to sing your fucking lyrics. <laughs> I, I swear, they're behind the music on Oasis. Half of it was just like, I hate my brother. He's a cunt. It was just like, like a lot He's of a bad. Yeah. He's a bloody <laughs> and you can't imagine like the kinks that any of their concerts ended because one punched the other one in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, the kinks would just keep going. Like they would get yeah. them to punch ups on stage. You're right. Fans. Yeah. And at least they're a little more, a little can kind of phrase their feelings a little better than I hate my brother. He's a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> they put my brother in jail for the night, Dave. Well, quite right, I say as well. You know, I would think the tubes and cheap trick, if there's a Zolo Venn diagram, I wouldn't put them in the main <laughs> center, but I think they orbit around it. And the tubes came to mind immediately, but I kept thinking they're too rock. But have either, I'm sure you have, have, they, have you seen them on SCTV? Oh, of course I have. I have that on DVD. Sure. Because I'm that nerd. <laughs> right. No, I get it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's my favorite TV show of all time. Those we're talking about my yeah. favorite things of all time. But they're really dressed like Devo-era New Wave robots at that point, which is kind of weird because they also still kind of look like San Francisco hippies to a degree. Mm -hmm. So I think they definitely were aware of and incorporating the Zolo-ness of the zeitgeist. I guess the thing, too, is that the tubes that, yeah, that fascinated, especially if you're talking about, like, the, like, right around kind of that time period, like, right after they did, like, completion backwards principle, is, like, they dress like yuppies. But this was, like, early. Oh, this yeah. was before like people were even doing a commentary like on a mainstream level of yuppies this is right. when like don henley was still like snorting a ton of coke and you know where the tapes were like already like kind of satirizing something that would become very very prominent and very toxic in american culture like the tubes were on that they were on that curve but again it's like i think that's why they were always kind of going to be a cult band there's always kind of a little bit of savagery in the satire which is why i love them also say was only a zolo element that i don't pick up on so much in the tubes is nervousness mm -hmm. all these other bands are just seem they the, nervousness seems to be like the center of their dna as evidenced by angst in my pants the song and the concept and everything else in terms of uh, sparks but the tubes it doesn't come off that way nor does cheap trick give that off that's a good point i mean i think that there's so many elements to how zolo could be defined and there's that anxiety level that you're bringing up which i think is really good and it's reflected in the music and once again because there's no anxiety in their personas maybe that's not reflected in their music that side of cheap trick and the tubes exudes confidence but the ability to maybe take the piss out of society at large is what puts them still in that orbit as you would say i mean Quaalude is a Zolo character. <laughs> oh my god, I love Quaalude so much. Well, how about Missing Persons? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, like that's the other dance. band that came to mind. Yeah, Terry Bozio. Yeah, with the direct Zappa connection there, yeah. And Dale Bozio, who has one of my favorite vocals on Catholic Girls. Catholic Boys. Like that. <laughs> 
here's the other thing the unusual voice I think in that regard so Fee Waybill I mean he sings he sings wonderfully but yes. there's something that's maybe nervous and high pitchy and I would say that there's something in a connection between say Fee Waybill's voice and Russell Mayles voice both are slightly operatic without sounding like trained opera singers and that's a feature about Zolo to me and uh, certainly I'd say that Sparks could be defined as Zolo all the way back to the very beginning when you listen to so like a, a, a woofer in Tweeter's clothing their version oh, yeah. of Do Re Me Yes. Who would, in 1974, think about... I, I imagine, like, <laughs> nowadays, that would be seen as being... That's been done before. But in 1974, I don't think that any rock band is going to take the piss out of a Broadway musical staple and yet still make it work. They also were smart enough to make fun of themselves or make fun of what was going on around them. It was on that song, Underground. Oh, Lord, we guided our world distribution through relevant means. Jazz, folk, rock, fusion appealed to the team. that's a Zolo element to me sure there's so much to it and I think it's the nervousness is what you would get immediately drawn to as Zolo and Split Ends with their synthy sound originally they started out as more like a prog band well a prog pop band rather than a prog rock band but as Neil Finn came into the band and they became more of a pop band their biggest album over here which was possibly to this day one of the biggest selling albums ever and I think they're getting ready to celebrate the 40th anniversary is True Colours they sound Zolo for two reasons to me one was the vocal style of Phil Judd who left I think by the time Neil came into the band or shortly after Neil came into the band and then he started out a group called The Swingers oh my god yes I love The Swingers They were a centerpiece of a movie, which I'm guessing that you certainly would have seen, Heather, called Starstruck. Yes, Uh, you know I love that movie. Also, carrying on once Phil Judd left Split Ends, they had a keyboard player right through called Eddie Rayner, and he was very much of that punchy, nervous synth style. There's a song on True Colors called What's the Matter With You. song which I could imagine the guys in Sparks heard and thought shit that's a great song why didn't we write that I have to say I'm really actually glad both of you brought up so well like the the anxiety and nervousness of Russell singing because I think that's something that is so appealing and especially when you think about the time that these guys were big in Europe you know this is sort of like the 70s the height of sort of macho rock male strutting and posing and you know everybody's kind of the cock of the walk and yeah Russell's cute but he's he's fucking nervous 
Christmas. And then when you get to this <laughs> album, which right down to the album title alone, it's, it speaks so beautifully without pandering, without any sort of like pop rock type pretension to just the fact that adolescence and puberty is hell. Growing up is terrifying. And <laughs> yes. deve- when you're developing, it is fucking terrifying because all of a sudden you got these hormones and, ooh, I like this person, but, you know, you feel like you're fucking Creighton, you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden all you're thinking about is sex and all that, which they have a song called All You Ever right. Think About Is Sex. It's not on this album. All you ever think about is sex. It's a great song. It's like, oh my God, this band is just doing it. They're speaking to it. And it doesn't seem like somebody, hey, I'm going to speak to the kids, you know, <laughs> like a lot, nice. of, a lot of bands do. Even though I they mean, do yeah. also have a song, Tip for Teen, Tips for Teens, which oh is right for God. the kids. And that's one of the best uh, songs. Best song. Oh my God. And the live version. Anybody listening, look at look at the live version on YouTube because you get to hear David Kendricks, who was their drummer at the time, who's literally one of the best percussionists ever. And that's the thing is like Spark just it's one of the things that make them special and I think it's kind of like I feel so lucky to, this is a band you feel lucky that you know about this shit's so good yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right because I mean when you put it in those terms it's like what if I hadn't watched Saturday Night Live that night they didn't play them on New York radio you know I may never have known about them until Cool Things which was an MTV hit in 84 Was that the song that they had the singer, not the main singer, Jane from the Go-Go's? From the, Jane from the Go-Go's, yeah. That was their closest to a pop hit. With the music video directed by Graham Whiffler, who also made some really groundbreaking music videos with The Residents back wow. in the 70s. He also, I believe, I could be wrong, I think he directed the one for I Predict, which is a song off this album, and that one was briefly banned on MTV because that sight of Ron Mayle and drag stripping, I guess, was just too much. <laughs> Pretty Woman by Van Halen for having a cross-dresser in it. The whole video is incredible, Pretty Woman. So I want to point this out, and this is not something I thought of, but just mentioning that talks about the Zolo moment of 1982, that Van Halen, who in many ways are the diametric opposite of Sparks, were plugged into the same type of humor and awareness and joyful irony. The Venn diagram of Zolo... Definitely big enough for Diamond Dave. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> he would have, you know, martial arts his way in it regardless. So Yes. I know. When is he going to get a game show? This is. <laughs> I, I feel like Hot, Hot for Teacher lied to me as a child. I was like, uh, I want this game show right now. <laughs> I think at this point, what we should do is we'll take another quick break and then we'll come back and talk about the album itself. So people can go out there and have some nicotina. <laughs> or drink a glass of water while holding their dummy. We'll be back in a moment to actually devote part of this show to angst in my pants. It's the reason you downloaded this program, I presume. We'll be back in a moment. See here. 
Music and movies. Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. We're back. Morris over here, Heather over there, Mike also over there, very near Heather over there. We're talking about Angst in My Pants, the album that is, not my personal situation. When you suggested this as an album to cover, Mike, and I already gone and confessed that I hadn't really paid much attention to Sparks until the last few years when Tim Merrill had gone and said to me, you need to listen to This Town Isn't Big Enough. And then, of course, I followed up with Kimono My House. And I thought, wow, what a great album. But I didn't sort of take it any further than that. And when I heard this album, I thought, Oh, can't we go to uh, do Kimono My House? You know, my first thought was, oh no, I'm not sure I get this. But I thought, no, this is your pick. And I listened and listened and listened. And now I've got to thank you immensely for having my pleasure. this album. There's several things that just stuck out to me about this being remarkably fun pop but also remarkably clever pop. We spoke about this off air. You mentioned that there was a Rupert Holmes connection to Sparks, which isn't on this album, but Rupert Holmes had been a guest on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, which you do the social media for. And it was only like this week or the last couple of weeks that I was listening to Gilbert Gottfried's podcast and there was something else that was spoken about on the show, which I thought about, which is what works for me about this Sparks album. And they mentioned nothing to do with Sparks. But over the last couple of weeks, they had Robert Hayes and Julie Hegarty talking about Airplane, or as we called it in this part of the world, Flying High. And they had uh, the director, Barry Sonnenfeld. And in both cases, Frank was making the point with the guests about what made the films work was the humor came from the scenario, from the situation. There was never any forced humor. There wasn't, hey, look, I'm funny. Right. It, they played it straight and then let what was going on around it bring out the humor. And I thought, my God, that was the eureka moment with Sparks. They never try to be funny. They're not trying to be, as I mentioned before, Weird Al Yankovic, or they're not trying to be Tom Lehrer. It's, it's not deliberately funny. It's just... That's ironic, or or the the situation around this is so bizarre. They let the humor come out, and th- they really sound like they're playing it straight. Uh, what comes to mind when you describe that more than anything is the 1960s Batman TV show, Study Old Chum, which is a work of genius because it is played straight. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. 
right. <laughs> this album, because it is played straight, there's so many great themes that are covered on in the lyrics. And like, certainly Sparks are a band that they do have a great musical sound. I mean, they're not just standing on a soapbox reciting poetry. Although, mind you, if you sort of like go onto Sparks' Facebook page over the last couple of weeks, uh, Ron has been reciting the lyrics of the new Sparks album coming out in the next month as poetry. So it does work in that way. Sparks are unique in a musical way, but a lot of what strikes me as being so great about Angst in My Pants are the lyrics, and they touch on so many topics on this album. They're speaking at about what they see, the society that they live in, but they're never overtly political. They're not talking about, oh, the president's done this, or race relations, there's a problem with that. They're satirical about what they see around them, but in very ordinary everyday ways one of the themes that's covered on a few songs on this album is i'm trying to think of the right word it's not exactly machismo but they're making fun of male fragility and a couple of the songs that i think that they do that really well are, as i interpret it are mustache and ensure weight loss both in different ways a lady Mustache, he sings about having the good fortune that women have in life, the start and end of a marriage go their way, getting a nice ring and getting an alimony, and they look better in the nude than men do. <laughs> but men have the ability to grow hair, facial hair between the nose and the lip. <laughs> yeah. 100 hairs make the man, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the surface, it seems like this little innocuous ditty done in an 80s context about growing facial hair. And I'm sure that someone else has done an overtly humorous song about it somewhere. But this, to me, is about, well, yeah, you women think you got it good. Well, yeah, but I can grow a mustache. <laughs> and then he rattles off all these, you know, very manly in different ways icons. So it's, you know... Uh, Pancho Villa, Ronald Coleman, and then the hilarious payoff when he says that when I clip trim the sides real small, my Jewish friends would never call. He's been saying ever since, he said, well, people didn't get it. It was actually in dedication to my hero, Oliver Hardy, and to Charlie Chaplin. Sure. Yes, right, of course, yeah. So why don't people think of them? Well, I suppose in England they do, where they get sparks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. The song construction, though, is as a pop song, it's great textbook. He's yeah. run male is such a great lyricist the first verse is the intro about to the lady's advantage and you think where is he going with this and then they say ah but we got mustaches and then the second <laughs> yeah. verse is about the different types of mustaches and the third verse is about the power that having a mustache can actually bring to a fellow and it's all done really straight but i love that construction that is to me is just textbook songwriting if you were to go to a class and says right well you know you're going to write your songs your way but here's a few tips for teens see what i did yeah. <laughs> in good song construction and in contrast they have the song instant weight loss Don't play that riff Don't play that riff That takes me back Instant weight loss Which 
I gotta say, musically is a lesser tune for me, but lyrically, it, it's great. You know, the protagonist is overweight, so he goes through 10 nights of weight loss to gain the attention of a lady he has the fancy of, but she rejects him, so he goes back to eating ice cream and coconut pie. On the one hand, it seems like it's, a, it's an old topic, a seemingly dumb song of she done me wrong, and it could be one of millions, but the song's bounciness and Russell Mayle's voice tells you that this is not supposed to be this overly earnest treatise on male fragility and you can spell that either way you want <laughs> yeah, uh, truly yeah but i just love how you know both of these songs approach some level of machismo or male fragility in a different way and the probably no coincidence that one sequentially is after the other on this album right and both are about outward appearance and the confidence that comes or doesn't come from having power over that if you're too fat you're not going to feel good you know the, the protagonist of this song doesn't feel good and then the mustachio protagonist of mustache couldn't feel better about himself or so he boasts there is always that element of irony and nervousness and it, you know and you might assume he's overcompensating but then maybe not but it, it the mind reels in the best possible way over all these words probably sort of thinking that another band and i mentioned them earlier on that come the closest in terms of having that level of humor without sort of being trying to be overly comedic uh 10cc and i'm thinking very or much. like in the, in the Godly and Cream era. Songs like I'm Mandy, Fly Me, or Donna, or Silly Love, which is really like a mini opera done in three and a half minutes. Mm. Life is a minestrone, art for art's sake, uh, which I'll take any day of the week over fucking Pink Floyd's money. But it makes the same <laughs> point. Uh, Rubber Bullets, I always yes. think of. What a work of, of incredible implied volumes with each word each uh, you know it just it's crazy it's a crazy setup for a song it's i always pictured it as this weird flip side of jailhouse rock about this dance party in prison you know and from the point of view of the guard saying i wish we had some rubber bullets to break this <laughs> <laughs> oh man so that 10cc connection sort of just hit me after re-listening this week to kimono my house and this town's not big enough it's operatic and grand in its fashion and those 10cc songs were as well They're making their points while being musically bouncy and having a, a bit of a wink, but not saying, hey, we're funny, please like us, please like us. I think one song that a lot of people didn't get was a funny song, but because it was played so straight, was I'm not in love. One of the greatest lines in pop to me is, I've got your picture on my wall, it hides a nasty stain that's lying there. <laughs> 
that's that, I'm with you. yeah. That's funny, but without being right, right. As Barry Sonnenfeld said, and, and by the way, I recommend his book, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Beyond Belief. It is wonderful, and I recommend the audio book so you get that inimitable or like perhaps very imitable voice. But as he said, do not ever let the composer know it's a comedy because you'll have slide whistles and triangles. <laughs> I imagine he'd be a fan of Sparks. Yes, yes. The song that probably most exemplifies the 10cc sense of humour on Angst in My Pants is Nicotina. But every cigarette is a dead, dead thing So I've allowed to try to be other things Still the happy trace of Virginia air that's a song that played straight. Uh, yes. A love song to a cigarette. They humanize the cigarette uh, on the <laughs> yes. on the song. The villain is not the cigarette to giving cancer to the smoker. It's the smoker is the villain because lovely little Nicotina who likes nothing more than to dance and play has been rendered to smoke away. But they play it straight. I keep coming back to this. I think Ron Mayles a genius and Russell for being able to bring those lyrics to life. And have you listened to it without sort of saying, oh, my goodness, this is ridiculous. You listen to it and you're involved. I get very emotional over a lot of these songs. In particular, the decline and fall of me has really made me well up with tears. are very funny it's you know somebody is in a uh, psychiatric facility he says you know could you remind me again which are girls which are guys i mean you just look at my frozen pizza collection and oh my god that's the lyric i have written (laughs) but by the the time he gets to the goodbye future mrs I really am very heartbroken for this character who is named Male, as the brothers are, who just is kind of like resigned to, I will always be trapped in this prison, you know, perhaps literal, perhaps more of his own making of anxiety and doubt and not knowing which way to go. And yet very funny and bouncy and, a, you know, a great heavily percussive song. So the anxiety and lack of assuredness does seem to be a theme across a lot of this album. That's the thing. It's like, I'm so glad that Mike, some of these songs had that effect on you because me too like there's a song on this album I've always found to be really incredibly kind of sad and really beautiful which is Sherlock Holmes which I also find musically to be the most gleaming spires like before we recorded I I warned both Mike and Morris that I was going to be bringing this up because one of my favorite bands ever is the gleaming spires and for those of you who don't know they were basically Sparks's backing band of this era of the band from what Mike like 1980 like 88 all the way to like 86 essentially you know after the disco you know number one song in heaven yeah so now i would say 1982 after in outer space yeah the spires actually they're probably best 
best known for the song. The song they should be best known for is a Christian Girl's Problems, because that's one of the greatest songs ever in, in musical history. But however, it is Are You Ready for the Sex Girls? Are you ready for the sex girls? The hot, hot, lead, hot, big, hot girls. Are you ready for the sex girls? The right, right, ultra vital, nice, nice girls. Which is, again, kind of, which fits in perfectly what we're talking about with this album and with Sparks in general, is a very funny song because on the surface, and it was used in Revenge of the Nerds, on the surface, it's easy just to write it off as like another sort of, you know, new wave version of a jock jam, just kind of like, yeah, I'm ready for the sex girls. But then you listen to the lyrics and it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on? And then there's like, like farm animal noises in there. If you listen closely and the music video is one of the best music videos ever, because it's literally just the two main guys of the band Les Bohem who's the bassist, songwriter, vocalist and David Kendrick, the drummer them literally making a lemon meringue pie and having coffee. That is the entire fucking video. There are no sex girls. And I think that's brilliant. That is like some almost like theater of absurd level hijinks. But a lot of the Spire stuff, especially deeper cuts, at times almost like like melancholy. Like this, a lot of it about loneliness. Um, like they have this song, How to Get Girls Through Hypnotism, which is taken like from, you'd see like these old ads and like a lot of 70s. I mainly have seen them in a lot of old 70s skin magazines. Yeah, <laughs> but, like um, detective but, magazines. Yeah, anything that yeah. Only men wake up, yeah. Because <laughs> all the all the lonely men, the lonely lad mags. But then, like the song itself is just like kind of it's just heartbreaking, and you're just kind of in this headspace of somebody who's just fucking lonely. It's beautiful, and so to have the Spires, a band that's capable of this many kind of shades, be with Sparks is just it's perfect. Look up the gleaming Spires. If you do anything for me, yeah. for just the goodness of humanity, <laughs> make me happy and look up gleaming Spires. <laughs> and I'd like to point out Heather. Um, that not only Revenge of the Nerds, but Are You Ready for the Sex Girls is in one of your favorite films of all time, The Last American Virgin. Oh, my God. I love that movie so much. So, I mean, you talk about the guy with angst in his pants, The oh Last American Virgin. <laughs> talk, talk about having your, your heart broken. Yeah. Oh, my God. That movie's so good. I've only seen Lemon Popsicle. Still haven't seen oh, it. Oh, which is great. That's yeah. the original. We would not have Last American Virgin without it. And just yeah. a related side note is that two songs from Angst in My Pants are on the Valley Girl soundtrack. The title track, and then uh, Eaten by the Monster of Love. Oh my god. The use of that song. That's one of the stand-up moments for me in Valley Girls. That's that shot of that guy on his bicycle, just to that, you know, don't let it get me. And it's like, oh, you get goosebumps. I haven't seen Valley Girl, though my wife Joanne, I think when we first met, that was a film that she said, oh, you, you got to see this. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so I didn't, but my bad. Eaten by the Monster of Love and Sherlock Holmes are probably like the two examples on this album in very different ways of an actual out-and-out love song, which is not something that you would normally necessarily attribute to Ron Mayo's lyric. You've gone and sort of spoken about Sherlock Holmes being a, a song about vulnerability. Yeah, 
inadequacy, which once again comes back to the songs in Machismo that we were speaking about before. And yet, musically, it seems like it's telling you one thing, and the lyrics are saying to you another thing. You know, the guy is saying, well, you know, I might not be as smart as Sherlock Holmes, but please think of me as him. And I, I like the fact that only the male brother could come up with a song saying, you know, please, to turn you on, I want you to think of me as someone clever. <laughs> or the songs of the 80s, the big hair metal songs that come on, baby, ride my rocket ship. Uh, right. I'm muscular. I've, I don't have angst in my pants. Um, right. and, but these two brothers, the male brothers, are saying, I want to turn you on with how clever I am. Think of me as Sherlock Holmes. And yet this guy, he's feeling very inadequate, feeling very uncomfortable. At least that's how I interpret it from the lyric. But the music, and this is what we are talking about before about their sound, because you were saying, oh, you see them as the quintessential American band. This is an example to me of why I think they sound very British of the time. This song, you like the song or not but it musically or at least from a production perspective i thought of do they know it's christmas oh, sure. oh my god no <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry heather heather don't hate me but there's something about the production style i get that yeah i definitely get it there's yeah. there's a sound a moment i'm presuming it's ron's synthesizer where we get this doppler effect sort of thing is it as they're going from one line of the verse to another line and that's a very British thing to me, and that whole sort of synthy sound. by the monster of love which now I have to watch Valley Girl just to see the context which that song is in that sounds to me once again like yeah don't fall in love it's rubbish but I'm also sort of thinking of um, the Joe Jackson song Fools in Love where he's making fun of uh, all these losers, all these couples, they've gotten in love. Then there's that clincher line, fools in love, they think they're heroes. I should know, because this fool's in love again. <laughs> you fall in love and it's going to completely fuck you up. They never come up with a confession of having fallen in love again in Eaton Bottom or Sort of Love. It's like, don't let it get me, but you suspect that it already has gotten him. I'm going to ask you, what's the context of it in the Valley Girl soundtrack? One of the kids in the movie, one of the boys, is riding his bike to one of the other valley girls houses where the hot mom is home by herself <laughs> that's such an 80s thing yeah yeah and yeah and it is an angsty moment for all involved <laughs> <laughs> it's also a very pantsy moment for yes <laughs> yes there's one moment now I, I want to see how you guys see this mike you already sort of brought up at the beginning of this that your introduction to sparks was by seeing that moment on snl where they performed mickey mouse and ron starts off talking about the rodents and various scientific yeah. facts about the mouse family while Danny DeVito looks at him as if to say, what are you doing? What the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah. You sort of get an impression in your head, right? Okay, this is the sort of band that Sparks are. They're going to do a song and they're going to take the mickey out of their subject matter. <laughs> Yet Mickey Mouse, I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, this does not sound like a moment where they're taking the piss or the mickey out of Disney or out of Disneyland. <laughs> Sort of 
sort of song that should be on the Stay Awake tribute album to sure. Disney. Yeah. Well, that to me is part of their Los Angelesness. They grew up in LA, and I am someone who shares with them and with Buzz Osborne of the Melvins who goes to Disneyland as often as he physically possibly can. You know, the sense of wonder, if we can strip everything that we have attached negative about Disney, the genius of the place is that it truly works. Again, every time I go there, and it's specifically Disneyland in California, the original one from the 50s, you can sincerely love it and ironically love it at the same time. And I think this was their tribute to that. And, you know, later they did Minnie Mouse on a Minnie Mouse album, a legitimate Disney album. <laughs> Yes, they did a sequel song about Minnie Mouse. So I imagine someone within the Disney hierarchy sort of heard them. Oh, these guys like us. Okay, yeah, put them under contract. Yeah, and they gave them uh, a Minnie Mouse video with old black and white Minnie Mouse clips from, you know, the best Disney cart, those little black and white Mickey Mouse surrealistic cartoons. It's so great. So it seems like there's this moment in the song that really sort of shows off their card-carrying Disney credentials by saying, maybe you can't believe a mouse, but when you feel the need, come back. I'm here for you i thought oh okay they really do love because i'm sort of waiting for some sort of snide lyric about the disney capitalist franchise or how walt himself was responsible for pushing other animation houses out of business or for the longest time america's and by in turns a lot of the western world's perception of what animation is is it's kids stuff it's cutesy characters it took until you know the simpsons in the 90s or unless you were following european animation that no animation can be for adults and you forgot that the Warner Brothers ruled the roost with Bugs and all those characters yeah. for a period of time. You know. But I would also point out Salvador Dali was a Disney fanatic, loved him. They worked together and then they had to stop because of World War II. Destino is the movie. It was completed in the early 2000s and you can watch it on YouTube and it's, it's amazing. It's the movie that Walt and Salvador Dali collaborated on. I think it's about about seven minutes and it's many of Dolly's paintings sort of just come to life in a flowing dreamscape of you know beautiful animation Six time USA we can go heal all there and it becomes Six time USA we can go anywhere and it becomes Six time USA we can go heal all there it all becomes the perfect place and what a place but if Mickey Mouse is a song that celebrates the American dream, is Sextown USA the flip side of that American dream? <laughs> Mickey Mouse is a celebration of Disney and you know, maybe Disney is the acceptable face of capitalism if, if Billy Bragg was going to have something to say there. <laughs> but Sextown is the opposite of that veneer of innocence, if you want. It shows up the family-friendly, well-manicured lawns for the false images that they are. And in a way, I'm sort of wondering, was there a moment where David Lynch thought, hmm, if it wasn't so boppy, I'd have put this in uh, in Blue Velvet. <laughs> what kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken? Fuck that shit! Pabst Blue Ribbon! 
<laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say that certainly arises from the same wellspring. If Mickey Mouse owns the big real estate, then <laughs> Sextown USA is everywhere else. Well, it's sort of like in Blue Velvet when the camera dives into the grass and we see the ants being right. very menacing and giant. Yeah. Sextown USA is a song, pun intended, saying to Mickey Mouse, no, fuck that. Um, <laughs> boisterous song that points to the way of what a lot of American 80s music was and thereby at this stage I'm listening to this album I hear yes some of those songs sound very American I guess it goes to show that they could straddle both sides of the Atlantic divide I, it's cool to think of it like that because honestly I never really thought about it like that with either Devo or Sparks because I don't know like with Devo with a lot of their synth stuff especially if you're listening to, like the first two albums to me it always sounded like Almost like the industrial noises you you hear, like if you live in a factory town. So to me, it's like a lot of like the American synth bands, and I don't know. Sparks are almost kind of to me like I guess with them, obviously it's less industrial, working class sounding, but more like I don't know. To me, the synth stuff I could see English influence, but to me, it just kind of also just sounds like American kids who like yeah who listened to a lot of that stuff but kind of have processed it through their own filter like i don't think a Brit- a native british band could make synth music like this like this band does that make sense yes not like some of the songs on angst in my pants true but i think that sparks took their i mean working with giorgio Moroder, that's more like euro disco and Kimono mm-hmm. My House, to me, sounds like a very British album. They're taking stuff from everywhere. And the more we're talking about this, the more I see your point. But it also, it doesn't surprise me to think that for years, I thought this was a British band. Because that still sort of makes sense to me. But I am also seeing, via our conversation and rethinking about these songs, that, yeah, I guess I do see uh, the American influence. Like What you were talking about before, about them being ahead of the curve. A lot of this in 81, 82, sounds like what was coming in 85, 86 from bands which were more heavily populating the Billboard Top 40 or our own Top 40 down here. 81, 82 wasn't ready for it, but 85, 86, they were saying, oh yeah, we get this and maybe it would have been a good commercial move for the band to re-release the album at that time and pretend like it had never been released earlier on. Speaking of being ahead of the curve, the cover art for Inks in My Pants and how amazing it is. I want this framed on my wall. It's so simple, too. Yeah, but this is clearly just from the visual. This is a band that did not give a shit <laughs> about, <laughs> trying to, about trying to appease mainstream sensibilities. I mean, Ron Mayle is not a man you would picture in drag, much less as a bride. <laughs> With his and little that, brother as the glam rock groom. Yeah. <laughs> and that amazing baggy silver... Yes. Which I love so much. And what's really great is like the live, like when you see live footage from this era is like the spires all have like black sequins. Yes. Outfit. Ah, it's the sweet spot. (laughs) I'm trying to think what other albums from around that era had such not necessarily just a simple approach, but had a humorous approach once again, without trying to be like without being a comedy record but who else was doing something like that on an album cover i think it's a good question because it, it actually is, kind of, yeah and it points out the fact that like because early 80s i mean you did have like a lot of amazing kind of gender bending but it was always men being very beautiful looking and drive yes. like you like you have like the new romantics and like steve strange and of course boy george and even like the hard rock scene or what people are now people call it like hair metal but i mean a lot of those guys looked very you know but here's Ron, who is like, he's like a rogue member of the Coquettes, minus yeah. the flesh. 
<laughs> which makes me love him even more. It's like, this is just such a, it's, I don't know, it's almost like a piss take on it, but not in a macho, I'm a man way and I'm not with these girly men. It's more just kind of cute and funny. I mean, that's the thing, like, Sparks could have, like, dark edges sometimes, but they were never, ever nasty or mean or, like, words right. I would never use to describe them. Which is um, part of, you know, what, when they lovingly bit the hand of their benefactor with the song Lighten Up, Marcy. terms of album covers the waitresses isn't tomorrow wonderful which is the uh front woman i can't think of her actual like high school graduation picture her first name's patty i can't remember patty, i can't think of her last name i know and i hate this because she like has an alice cooper connection so i feel like oh and a devo connection they're also out of the same ohio scene oh yes and very another quintessentially la band though like devo from ohio and then you know what i was thinking of is the nazareth record Malice in Wonderland, which is sort of their new wave album. You know, it looks like a suburban backyard, but it's like been bombed. It's been like shot to pieces by napalm or something. It's all mannequins. So it's, uh, it's a really good question, and not you know, it's something that I really want to research now. Well, was it mannequins? What was with mannequins in the early eighties? Because I remember right, yeah, Rush yeah, had quarter- their new wave album has the mannequin on it. Yeah, right. Quarter Flash. I remember that because my my mom had both of their Quarter Flash albums. I remember being really little and staring at both album covers being like what is this like because they're both like really eerie you look at both those album covers now and that cover is still for both albums like the first one is just like these weird kind of almost like phantasmic looking men it's not mannequins but both are really like what the fuck like because <laughs> you listen to the band and you're like the band does not match <laughs> and like, the music video for harden my heart yeah where she's like going, going through like a trailer and like there's tanks and shit's on fire very and, classic characteristic elements. It's a guy with a tuxedo and a motorcycle helmet, a flamethrower. Yes. Was <laughs> you know famously written about in a Village Voice article titled "Music for Stewardesses." <laughs> So 80 to 82, I was like, that was when I was like 11 to 13, 14. And like the promise of the future that was in here and genuinely, I would say, you know, bands that were artful in a way that I connected with art like Sparks, but then even Quarter Flash, which was light rock um, that moms could listen to, had this really heavy duty avant-garde element to them. And of course, you know, it all fell apart. After, but we wouldn't be where the world's promises were made good for us. So actually, Quarter Flash, the other great Quarter Flash music video, "Take Me to Heart." You have the lead singer. Oh god, I can't remember her name. I want to say her first name's Mindy, but she basically is stalking a guy. Like she's yeah. watching him, and she's got pictures of him plastered all over the wall. And that's actually another kind of cool, weird '80s theme: is stalkers as like heroes because you have like uh, the producers <laughs> for their, their video for she. Sheila, which very underrated power pop rock band. The producers is a band. But yeah, I mean, he's talking to her, but you like him? You're like, oh, but he's cute. She just needs to fall in love with him. And you're like, wait, wait a minute. What am I saying? He's talking to her. <laughs> I hope it doesn't show. It'll go away. It's just a passing phase. It'll go away.
bring the conversation back to the title track of the album. I think now you've already sort of gone and alluded to this, Mike, about this being about you know, teenage boy anxiety. But I actually sort of read into this. This is about male anxiety, and this sort of fits in neatly with the other songs. I put up a post a couple of days ago in the Love That Album group about the shit that goes on in my head. And thinking about the lyrics to this song, I thought about the Ode to Joy, musically from you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but sure. lyrics written by Friedrich Schiller. Friedrich Schiller was a German poet, and the idea behind these words were about humanity coming together and all men shall be brothers. So how do I relate that to angst in my pants about all men being brothers, everyone being together? Get on with This is not a song of sexual frustration in the way that the next song Frustrated is. This is a song about getting a hard-on in an inconvenient time and place. (laughs) At one point in the song, Russell is singing, You can be smart as hell, know how to add, know how to figure things on yellow pads. You can dress nautical, learn to tie knots, take lots of Dramamine out on your yacht. And the theme of this is, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're an academic or you never got beyond primary school your dick is going to control you (laughs) this is a thing it doesn't matter what you believe any of these things you can hate someone else all you like but underneath your skin that's it the one thing that's going to tie every man together just thinking about mankind and they're singing a lot about male anxiety on this album is the ability to have an erection. It doesn't matter where you go. Friedrich Schiller wrote about all men shall be brothers and the male brothers are singing about all men shall have a hard on. (laughs) This is really funny because I never heard or surmised that it was about having an erection. And this is a song that I have thought long and hard about. um, Long and hard, I see what you did. I walked right into that. I lobbed that one to you, Mars. (laughs) To me, and it's not specifically male, it's about trying to live with a secret and you can't because as it says what's the computer say it says hey joe i'm here hello you can't get away from this and that's the angst in your pants and i always just thought that was a clever turn of phrase uh, and not literally pants related it's very powerful to me and again i'm very moved by this emotionally this idea that i'm going to try to cover up i'm very smart look i can do math oh look i'm a fancy guy with a boat but still there's this secret that i'm desperate for you to not know and that will always control my life the literalness of having angst in your pants works with that interpretation of it sure. being just of it being a deep dark secret because having that erection when you're at Aunt Becky's home for scones and tea is not a convenient time you don't want anyone there to know I actually kind of thought it was the mix about I felt like it could kind of allude to sort of like a more sexual parent nature but also like there's that line give it a hundred years it won't go away I don't know why that line of this song there's so I mean it's a song just Every line's a great line in it. Just, I just feel like it's kind of just natural. It's just angst, which can be like, yeah, oh my God, I've got a boner at a very non-bonerific time. <laughs> or it could just be kind of like, Mike, I love your interpretation. I love, you know, the whole thing of just having something inward that you're just you're angsty about it and having to hide it and you can't let it out and you can't right. show it, but it's there. It's a part of you and it, it is not going away. In it, your desperation to control it, it controls you. Exactly. But that's kind of 
again, like part of the cleverness of this band is that even when you think they're being obvious, they're not always being obvious. And you guys might think I'm totally crazy, but a band that actually just hit me like a minute ago, I'm thinking like, okay, bands of this era that are clever, great musicianship, great songwriting, can speak to like the anxiety and angst of the human condition, sometimes in a very funny way, is the cars. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Oh my God. And Zolo. I, I'm embarrassed that they didn't come up in the conversation for, on my part. <laughs> I'm actually, when it hit me, I'm like, fuck, why didn't I think about that? <laughs> they were such mainstream successful versions of all this stuff that I think I forget about that sometimes. Right. No, and it's easy to, because like the Cars are one of those bands that like people of almost every stripe, like you'd have family members that are like, oh yeah, I have the Cars greatest hits or like very kind of straight laced sort of pink people will like the Cars, but then you could be a total person that's like, yeah, I love Suicide. Well, right. you love Suicide, then you also love the Cars. Like, you know, you can love Sparks, you also love the Cars. It's all sort of ties in together. You know, and another great just uh, American band that, that obviously did have a lot of success. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's weird because some bands get so big that it's easier to overlook them because you kind of want to give more attention to the ones right. Right. that didn't, that aren't getting that money, <laughs> that licensing <laughs> money or, or whatever. But the Cars are great. great for all of oh, those aforementioned reasons which now makes me wish we could go back in time and have some kind of cool double bill with with sparks in the early 80s with that gleaming spires lineup and then double bill it with the cars with yeah. you know, benjamin Orr and rick okasic were still with us and that'd be an amazing show I, li- I like to think that if there's the heaven like heaven's just all the cool shows you never got to see on earth <laughs> like, yeah. all the any all the concerts you missed due to either missed timing because you weren't live do you know who would have the number one song Long in heaven in that heaven. <laughs> but yeah, so that's just one of the many geniuses of this band. Because that's a special sweet spot. It's kind of like what you you both were saying earlier. It's like, yeah, I mean, you have artists that were, I mean, and they're great. Like, I think there's a brilliance to what Weird Al does. And, yes. you know, you know Tom Lear. And then you have some bands that are almost like, they're kind of written off as comedy novelty bands. But if you actually listen to their discography, they're a lot weirder. And at times a lot more dark, like, say, Barnes and Barnes. Because most people, oh my like, lord, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, yeah. Brilliant fucking band. Like, did, definitely do not get enough credit because everybody's like, oh yeah, Fishhead. No, there, there's a lot more to this band than Fishheads. But that's kind of the joy about like discussions like this is it, it gives it gives us a chance to celebrate these artists, but also like gives your listeners more just like a chance, hopefully, to be like, you know, wow, I didn't think about it like that. And then you know, hopefully, like, I like think we're planting little seeds of discovery here. While we've been talking here, there's one thing that came up into my head about a song that we spoke about earlier and normally i'd leave it out of the way thinking that that's gone but i really need to bring this up because it'll get you excited heather we're talking before about sherlock holmes how that's a song about a guy who's anxiously hoping that he can impress this woman he has this level of anxiety but he says but think of me as someone clever and a song that i thought is a good parallel and once again it could be debatable whether they're zolo or not are your beloved kinks uh, the song would be Wish I Could Fly Like Superman. Sherlock 
Holmes, the guy, he's not a muscular guy. He's not as handsome as a rock star and he's not a stud. But I just want you to think of me as clever as Sherlock Holmes. But Ray Davies, he sings in Wish I Could Fly Like Superman. I'm a puny guy. I'm a nothing, but I'm anxious about the state of the world. And God, I wish I could just fly like Superman. His <laughs> lyrics, his lyrics are another example of being funny without being comedic. From a lyrical perspective, the kinks fit as a solo band. Well, absolutely. It's funny. You want to talk about a song that is discussing literal sort of angst in the pants region would be Destroyer. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm right at right, like the same year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and which is one of my favorite King songs. This is a great song. God, that's why I love the Kinks so much. Morris, you, you do this. You know what you're doing, bringing up all these bands. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I wish I'd have brought it. Look, a part of me was thinking, oh, my God, we didn't bring that up. And I thought, well, oh, I can leave it out of the way. But I thought, no, Heather's on the line. I've got to bring it up. Oh, my God. If you bring up Blue Oyster Cult and Bajas, this is going to turn into the Berlin Alexander Platz. Um, not, not, in not, okay. not in this show. Not in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so look, we've been speaking for a long time, so just final thoughts about Angst in My Pants. Anything that we haven't brought up yet thematically or just final recommendations to people out there who haven't heard it? To me, it's the perfect Sparks Gateway album. Where would you go next? You didn't want a Greatest Hits album. You wanted to go to another real album. Where would you go after this? Come on to my house. Dial it back down to the glam rock and then work your way back up. To quote Meatloaf, uh, Mike took the words right out of my mouth. Like, that... <laughs> Was it while he was kissing you? Uh, it, spiritually, yes. With his yes, metaphorically <laughs> in the brain, yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is absolutely. I think it is the perfect spark. If this is somebody's like, I'm kind of curious about this band, give them this album. Because it will plant all the right seeds, too. Because think about it, like the song that got me into this band, the very first song I remember hearing by them was I Predict. And it, it, right. took, it was just that one song that led me to everything from Komodo My House to, you know, Indiscreet and Womp That Sucker to working with Franz Ferdinand. And also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, they also collaborated with Lerita Mitsuku, who were a very cool French duo that were a very quirky, kind of hard to pin down band too. The collaboration song was okay though, so maybe I should have mentioned that. <laughs> Singing in the shower. It's cute. It's cute. It's not like the greatest thing to be the band, but it's cute. But definitely, like, if you love this album, you're going to love the whole band. And, and that's yeah. the thing with Sparks is even as their sound, as their sound has kind of changed, they have never changed. But they constantly evolve musically. They're one of yes. those bands. You Actually, you mentioned Rush. I mean, this is weird because they're two very different bands, but I love right. both of them because I love Rush. You can see the same at Rush. Yeah, it's like every Rush album. If you love Rush, you're going to find things you love about every album even though obviously some of the albums are musically different they have a new album coming out very shortly called the steady drip 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 and i've already heard one of the songs off the album i think it was called don't fuck up my world please don't fuck up my
Ron Mayle has been reciting the lyrics to some of the songs from the album in isolation, I think, and putting them on the Sparks website or uh, on the Facebook page. So look for that. They're still out there. They're still doing their thing. They're not one of these bands that it would seem prepared to rest on their laurels. I mean, you, know, you mentioned before, Mike, about the 21 nights, 21 albums over a lengthy period of time. The fact that they have that many albums in the back catalogue. There's other bands that have continued to record, but you know, have long passed since artistic glory days. But you don't fill out 21 nights. No, and they will still, at this point, create some of the greatest Sparks songs, mm. which is what really blows me away. I think of Piss Off with from Franz Ferdinand, that uh, song that they did with them. Dick Around. Now I'm sensing the scene, the Dick Around, Piss Off, and Don't Fuck Up My Life. <laughs> you know, they are still capable of creating some of their greatest work and they still regularly do it suburban homeboy from little beethoven i mean this is all stuff from the past 15 years who knows if they'd been bigger than big who knows whether um they'd still be doing it you know the right might have right. said to russell you know you got more cocaine on the last two or so i'm yeah. just going up to do my <laughs> yeah. own thing all right well that concludes our discussion and it's basically two thumbs up 20 limbs up if you want <laughs> yeah. or 21 if you're anxious <laughs> What? <laughs> sorry, Heather. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, just two thumbs up from each of us. Uh, yes. Oh, I can't believe I did that. My huge thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Just, I want to know what's coming over the next month from either of you. I mean, Heather, you mentioned that you do have some more projection booth coming out and plus a few projects that you can't name publicly i'll be handing you about it privately once the uh great move 2020 is finished which will be very very soon thank thank the god basically it's going to be some more book work and definitely more article work i've mentioned the the tubes i'll be adding to that definitely be doing some more music video writing and film mm-hmm. article writing and uh if anybody's curious uh, about my work you can check some of my articles and links out at mondoheather.com and how's the book doing they're doing good they're doing good the encyclopedia of bizarro film that you have collaborated with john skip that in particular i was so thrilled to get my copy of that i'm so glad you got that copy yeah hopefully i know like we ran into kind of a an issue with amazon because like the first batch like sold out this is a small press situation so you can still get it pretty affordably though at barnes and noble uh, online or of course talk to any of your independent local bookstores and support them and see if they can order it and i'm I'm so glad i'm glad you you got it i hope you enjoyed it i do and i am it's just a book i keep coming back right i'm going to read another chapter okay i'm going to read another chapter. same here yeah I'm going to reread. oh thank you thank you both one of those books you just continuously come back and you reread and you reread bits and pieces and yep yeah, absolutely oh my god thank you that, i think that's the best compliment a writer can get if you can hook somebody to finish something you've written that's like the first like okay cool that's the first gold star <laughs> but then like you know but if they actually re- return to it because they liked it so much then it's like oh now you that's better than any award or anything like that that's the best so thank you thank you very much mike how's teen movie hell doing oh we're setting the world on fire yeah heavy metal was 2014 teen movie hell came out last year i think it's uh doing great we had a west coast tour scheduled for this summer but uh maybe next summer and so in the meantime i have three podcasts to manage and i also have like heather i have recently been lucky enough to get some work that i cannot disclose at this point sure. but i've been doing a lot of uh, blu-ray commentaries and liner notes 
Oh, so that'll nice. Be out in six months or so, yeah. Oh, man. I can't wait. Well, I'm going to have to hand you off air about that. So, once again, the three podcasts, as I said, I've only heard two of the podcasts, but I'm sure that the third one with Ked Ellinger will be up to the standard of the first two, which is a high standard, I will I I'll thank add. you. So, there's 70 movies from the 70s. 70 movies we saw in the 70s. Uh, with Ben Reiser, uh, mm. Crackpot Cinema, which in hindsight I wish I had named The Broken Bijou, and then Busted Guts with Cat Ellinger, which is about uh, the history of comedy cinema. Do you have an episode? Or, or yeah, two, or the first episode's up. It's once a month, and the June episode is up now. I'll be putting links to all these shows up in the uh, show notes for this. So, yeah, people out there, you've got a feel for the sort of conversation that my two wonderful guests can bring to the show. So please subscribe to their own shows, get the DVDs with their commentary when and they publicly announce them uh, and just read their articles online. Absolutely magnificent stuff. And all right. So in closing, basically just a reminder, you heard Joanne at the start of the show, you know how to get in contact with us. Just also to remind you that Love That Album is part of the Pantheon podcast network at this stage, about 35 shows all to do with music talk. And they're labeling us the MTV of the podcast world. And that is in MTV as in when they actually had stuff to do with music yeah. uh, but i think that's pretty much it as for the next episode i love that album the show that you're actually listening to right now next month we'll be speaking with a man called john penhallo and john was referred to me by one of the show's listeners one of the fellows in the love that Album facebook group david kelly uh, shout out to you thanks for doing this so john penhallo was the first manager of fairport convention so oh, we'll be cool. talking with him about the origins his involvement with Fairport, his time with Richard Thompson and Sandy Denny, who I love more than words can say. Anyway, so that we'll have some fun with that. Please tune in for that. If you've been enjoying the show, please refer us to your friends. We'd love more music-loving people on board, not just to listen, but also I want them to say, hey, I'd like to talk about an album that I love on the show. This is an open door. As long as you uh, think you have something to say about an album that you really dig, you're always welcome on this program. Please refer all your music-loving friends and music-talking loving friends to the program we've rambled on long enough with that just once again my thanks to the two of you i love you both thank you mar so much thank you please out there be nice to each other Uh, listen to some great music listen to some sparks records if you haven't until now just look after each other the world is in a pretty fucked up state Uh, i present this show just hopefully puts a smile on your dial yeah but look after each other more than ever i say this every show to look after each other we're we're recording this in june 2020 so you know the events of the last few weeks just please you, you know someone's doing it tough look after them all right until next month all the best cheers It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 